The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Navigating the Cancer Maze with Grace Goller. Dealing with cancer is by no means easy to handle, but our program aims to make it easier through knowledge. Whether you've been recently diagnosed, are going through treatment right now, or are a survivor, our program will have points that you should hear. And by sharing our stories together, we'll make it truly a life-changing experience that you don't have to go through alone. Now, here is your host, Grace Goller. And welcome to today's Navigating the Cancer Maze, Neville Shimon, who I'm talking with in Singapore. Welcome to the show, Neville. Hi there, Grace. Uh, greetings from Singapore. Wonderful. One of my favorite places, as well you know. Uh, Neville, can you share with uh, our listeners to Navigating the Cancer Maze something about your background, why you became interested in medical imaging, and in particular, the area of radio, radio pharmaceuticals, which is your baby? Absolutely. Uh, I kind of have a, a general science background, so I have a, a sort of a chemistry and a physics and a biology background. And when I sort of specialized later on in, in degrees, I, I was more sort of focused on pharmacology. And uh, I've always had that general interest in science, but the, the real imagination to, to stimulate me to, to go into imaging came about when I was studying uh, stroke, uh, and we basically used magnetic resonance imaging, or MRI, to look at the brain structures. It was my first exposure to looking at cutting-edge imaging. I, mean, I was really taken aback by how uh, fundamental it can be to changing a clinician's or a patient's view of, of a disease. Um, with more studies and some more postdoctoral work, I, I got first-hand experience to work with PET imaging systems and, and to make PET imaging uh, traces or radiopharmaceuticals that you could use to image different types of disease. And I, I quickly realized it provides information, um, because picture speaks a thousand words, that enables you to make real decisions about the patient's uh, management of their, of their condition. So that's what really sort of led me into medical imaging, because I, I just realized when I saw my first images, wow, how... How amazing is that? I can actually see what's going on inside the body and not guess. Yep, yep. This is fairly amazing, isn't it? Um, that was in the UK, I presume. That's correct, yes. Then I was uh, back at Manchester University. Big plug to Manchester. And, and you'll have to excuse my accent because, you know, I was born and bred in Salford in Manchester, so 
a big shout for everybody out in Manchester. Hey, it's a good accent. <laughs> um, you've mentioned uh, already your focus on PET scans. Now, many of our patients in Australia really struggle. They find it very difficult to procure a PET scan. Um, they have MRIs. Some people are worried about the radiation associated with a PET scan or a CAT scan. So can you tell us about what is a PET scan? And, um, and then we'll move on to some more questions around that. But what's the actual PET scan? What can you see with it and what are its advantages? Sure. So a PET scan, really, um, PET stands for positron emission tomography. So you see the word emission in there and, and the positron bit. So what we do is we inject you with a drug that emits a, a positron and that positron, when it, when it breaks apart, creates a signal. And it's inside your body, and we can measure that signal by putting you inside a machine that's called a PET scanner. It's just basically a big detector. And that captures that signal that's emitted from that radiopharmaceutical when it's put inside your body. And that's basically the principles of PET. Now, the really interesting thing is the radiopharmaceutical that we use um, measures metabolic activity. So it measures how active your cells are, whether they're running around or whether they're nice and, and slow and quiet. And it's, it's built on the backbone of, of what really is just is glucose. So we make some radioactive glucose, we inject you with that, and because we know cancer cells are always running and, and very, very active and always trying to grow and grow and grow, the glucose or the um, FDG, as we call it, is taken up by those cancer cells and emits the signal. And this, the scanner can determine exactly where that signal is coming from. So we can identify and localize the origin and the, the volume or the size of the, of the cancer that's causing that signal. Mm -hmm. So what are the advantages, uh, say patients listening today, um, what are the advantages of having the actual PET scan? You've gone a little bit into it there, but both for the doctor, I guess, it's, it's the accuracy of diagnosis. But for the patient, what's the advantage? And is there a problem with the radiation? Um, for, for, the, for the patient, they can have a, a, a clear um, picture of the, the disease itself, whether there's a disease present or whether there's a reoccurrence of the disease or whether the disease is spread. And we primarily use it as, as a staging tool to tell us the stage of the cancer. So the patient has a much clearer picture of their disease. Um, from, from a safety standpoint, I think it's a, it's a very good issue you bring up, Grace, because PET isn't the first line of, of diagnosis tool that we use. It's, it's always a risk-benefit ratio, and the, the facts of the matter, and we always refer to the International Atom Atomic Agency's view on this um, and, and the Royal Society's view, that um, basically any form of ionizing radiation could produce cancer, so there's, there's that inherent risk in it. The risk-benefit ratio is, is measured against using other diagnostic tests first, as first-line tests, to determine using the best evidence-based medicine that there is a, a high risk of cancer. So we, we're going in there with our PET scan with a clear view that you know we, we are concerned or, or, or are very concerned that there is a possibility of cancer. Mm -hmm. So uh, a tool like an X-ray is far more safer then uh, PET-CT to examine uh, possible um, prevalence of cancer. So you would use a, a first-line uh, testing methodology 
or you could use, for example, ultrasound or some or, or another technique that doesn't involve ionizing radiation, and follow then if that test suggests or heavily suggests that there could be cancer present with the, the PET. Because the PET will tell you where the cancer is and whether it's actually active, growing. Which is very useful information for both the doctor and the patient, isn't it? So it's a, it's a worthwhile um, bet. Um, so can you describe to us uh, step by step what would happen in the process of having a PET scan? Sure, Grace. Um, typically the, the patient will be fasted for about four hours prior to, to, the, to the PET scan. And on the day that the patient comes in for the scan, we'll, we'll make them lie down for about... 15 or 20 minutes, just so they can completely relax. And because we're measuring me- metabolic activity, usually we don't want, you know, if they've been walking around or running to the clinic, for them to pick up lots of, of uh, signal from the muscle groups that are still very active. So we let them calm down first and, and relax. And then we inject them with the, the radio tracer, um, which is based on their body weight. So the, the, the amount of radioactivity they receive is proportional to their, their body weight, it's typically about 0.1 to 0.2 millisievert per kilogram. And then, and then they, they're placed in a scanner. We do a, a short CT scout scan, just so we can localize the area where we, of interest of where we want to perform the actual PET scan. Then the patient is given a, a CT uh, tomogram, which gives us a, de- a more detailed map of their body, so we can overlay the PET scan onto that so we, so we can see exactly where any signs of disease are and then we perform the, the PET scan after about 60 minutes. So there, there's a time delay between injecting the tracer and the patient, patient actually having the PET scan and during that time the drug is, is, is balancing or equilibrating inside the patient and typically the scan if it's, it's from thigh to head it would be between 5 and, and 40 minutes or some of the new scanners, you know, even 30 minutes. And the patient is then completely finished. They can come out of the scan and typically within 2 to 4 hours they, they will have their report in their hand detailing um, the conclusion from the nuclear medicine uh, physician. Great. And they get a very nice little book here. Um, I presume that's the same everywhere where you've got your nice little coloured scans and usually a disc in the back, yeah. Absolutely. And the patient themselves can see because the CT scan provides good um, resolution of the bone structures. They can see approximately um, if there's any indication of disease, where it is, and, and they can immediately flag that up to their doctor and ask them and start asking them questions. Yeah, great. Um, PET scans, yeah, as you said, they do assist with the initial diagnosis. In terms of monitoring cancer long term, is there a limit on how many PET scans a patient can have, for instance, in a year? And um, perhaps this is relevant for people who don't have markers um, that uh, are able to be measured in the blood. I think the, 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 as the rule of thumb is we, we try to limit the number of uh, PET scans that are performed and try to, to look at um, monitoring uh, cancer in terms of using o- other endpoints um, because there is the, the inherent risk of, of ionizing radiation. But if a, if a patient has had cancer and they've undergone forms of, of chemotherapy, 
it stands to, re- to reason after a month later, after having an initial PET scan, you would want to see um, whether that therapy has, has worked. Um, so it's, it's really, again, it's a risk-benefit ratio based on, on, on the doctor's assessment. If you have an aggressive form of cancer and you're treating it aggressively, you need to know whether that works or not. But it's really taken on a case-by-case basis. But as any physician will tell, they will always work on a side of caution. So it's not a, what we would say, a monitoring tool. We would use it as a res- to measure or quantify the response to a, a therapy, but not to monitor uh, the cancer per se. Right, that's a very good answer. Thank you. Uh, are the latest generations of PET CT scanners improved in terms of the levels of radiation, or is it only improved in in the actual imaging sense? That's a very good uh, question, Grace, and, I, and I'm very pleased to report that um, all the manufacturers uh, have have made huge strides in developing uh, PET scanners that are far more sensitive to detecting the emission component that I mentioned from the radiopharmaceutical and are faster in, in acquiring the data from the patient. And the principal amount of, CT, uh, of radiation that comes from the CT, uh, which is the, to provide you with that anatomical localization for the PET component of the scan, has been drastically reduced. Um, I can give you uh, one or two examples. Mm, please. If you, if you imagine that uh, typically, for a for a CT a component of this scan, for a, for a PET CT, you receive about seven millisieverts. For the radiopharmaceutical, we'll call it FDG, you receive about eight millisieverts. So the so the total is about fifteen millisieverts. That compares against a diagnostic CT that would be say used for a, a, a high resolution diagnostic CT whole body at thirty millisieverts. Mm. Say your PET CT is about a modest uh, dose of radiation. The new scanners would reduce that by 30 to 50 percent, dropping you down to the below 10 millisievert range, which is phenomenal. And a large part of of that is to do with the the, the very sophisticated uh, computer algorithms and mechanical features that are now incorporated in the scanner, which allow you to scan a patient, for example, um, continuously without the bed position stopping as they used to in the old days, but allowing the patient to pass from one end of the scanner to the other, continuously acquiring PET data. Now, we're, we're familiar with doing that with a CT scan, but it's only just been developed for a PET scan. And there's manufacturers who, who are focused on, on purely reducing the, uh, the dose of ionizing radiation uh, received during these scans, and they've done a phenomenal job. They really have. That's very fascinating. I'm pleased I asked you that question. We've come to the end of our first session, Neville, on navigating the cancer maze. We'll take a break and be back shortly uh, talking more about traces, radio, pharmaceuticals and scanners. Don't go away. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Learn to navigate the cancer maze with trusted professionals in cancer health care. The Grace Scholar Institute, a not-for-profit organization with an established track record, a global clientele, and expertise in local and international referrals. The Institute's founder has almost 40 years' experience as a multidiscipline cancer strategist with a focus on finding options and implementing personalized care for cancer patients. The Grace Scholar Institute can help you navigate the cancer maze. Why not email the Institute today at institute at gracegoller.com. 
or visit their website at gracegollerinstitute.com. Listen each week to Navigating the Cancer Maze with your host, Grace Goller, from the Grace Goller Institute, as she interviews cancer medicine experts, researchers, allied health professionals, patients, and caregivers. Navigating the Cancer Maze provides you with information, education, inspiration, and a toolkit that will equip you wherever you are and whoever you are to effectively navigate your way through the cancer maze. The Grace Goller Institute also provides ebook resources. Be inspired. Be empowered. Visit the Institute's website at www.gracegollerinstitute.com or email institute at gracegoller.com. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. You are tuned into Navigating the Cancer Maze with your host, Grace Goller. We'd love to hear from you today on our program. Please call us toll-free from North America at 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. International callers may dial in to 480-553-5759. You may also send an email to institute at gracegoller.com. Now, back to Navigating the Cancer Maze. We're back on Navigating the Cancer Maze. I'm Grace Gawler, your host, and today we're speaking with Neville Shimon about radio pharmaceuticals and scans and PET scans and all kinds of things that are related. Um, Neville, uh, let's move to your area of expertise in radio pharmaceuticals. Can you describe to our listeners, you know, what is a tracer, what is a radio pharmaceutical, and what do you do in your everyday work when, when you're involved in the design manufacture of these? A radiopharmaceutical is a drug that's been made radioactive that can track a physiological endpoint. So, for example, uh, we can manufacture, a, uh, as mentioned previously, a, an analogue of, of glucose, and we make that radioactive, and that will enter cells that are highly metabolically active. Once they, they enter a cell, they'll undergo um, a breakdown process by, by an enzyme called hexokinase 2, and then it will be trapped within the cell because typically glucose breaks down to other processes using other enzymes and isomerases in your cell. But this particular compound, once it's been broken down to hexokinase 2 to uh, FDG6-phosphate, it's trapped inside the cell. So we can track and monitor highly metabolically active um, cells by this pathway. Now we can select other pathways that look at lipid incorporation into cell membranes of growing cancer cells and other specific physiological or biological processes. And the drug that's related to that, we make radioactive, and again, it can follow that biological or physiological process. And in SRP, Singapore Radiopharmaceuticals, where we work, we select certain types of radiopharmaceuticals that target specific types of cancer and we manufacture those on a daily basis. They need to be manufactured every day because the, the half-life or the shelf life of the drug is very short, mm-hmm. about six hours. And, and those are manufactured just as they would in, in a major uh, company's uh, radio pharmaceutical, uh, or pharmaceutical um, company, uh, such as if you were making a, a tablet formulation, 
it's a, it's a completely sterile Class A environment, and we, we manufacture in that same way. And we ship those products directly to the hospitals by um, 8 o'clock or 7.30 every day. Quite a system and quite an organisational um, logistical uh, exercise too. It is. Given a short shelf life of these items, they have to be delivered very rapidly. So don't cancel your PET scan on short notice. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> You'll give someone a really big headache. <laughs> um, in talking about um, the development of the radio pharmaceuticals, do you ever get requests from, uh, say, an oncologist who's got a specialist area who says, hey, we want to get something that's even better to, to look at, uh, say, a neuroendocrine tumour? And is that part of what you would do? Absolutely, because what, what we're interested in doing is providing cutting-edge diagnostic tools to the clinicians and we really welcome that kind of engagement where they can say to us, look, we have this type of cancer, we know the ubiquitous uh, or common tracer that you use is FDG, but in this, in this particular cancer that I have, if I give my patient an FDG scan, it's useless because it's tracking metabolic activity, the cancer, for example, is in, in the brain, and the brain is highly metabolically active. If I inject FDG, you can't see anything. Mm. What can I... What can you what can you provide for me um, to be able to image that form of cancer? And we can look at a, a different methodology to image that particular type of cancer because we can say, ah, right, okay, we understand your problem. And what we can do is we can provide you with a with a tracer that that looks at, for example, amino acid uptake. And we take an amino acid, we raid your label, or make that that amino acid radioactive. And then we can inject that into the patient. When it goes into the brain, it's not picked up by brain tissue, metabolically active brain tissue. It's only picked up by cancer cells that are using the amino acids for protein synthesis to grow. So they pick up the amino acid and they use it to, to grow. So then you image only the cancer. So we can be driven by those endpoints very easily. Wow. And uh, what, what type of scan is that for the brain that you've just been talking about? That, that's called an FLT scan. FLT. file thyrosine. Okay, that's interesting. Um, that, I guess, leads us into speaking about different types of cancer and the different scanning methods that are available. I wanted to start off in particular with choline PET CTs, which also seem to be very difficult for our patients to procure. Um, I know they're done uh, in, in Europe um, and, and relatively uh, routinely. I presume they are also done in Singapore relatively routinely. Can you talk about the advantage of using a choline PET CT um, in terms of uh, efficacy and its difference between an ordinary, say, MRI or um, other type of scan for prostate cancer. We'll go on to breast cancer and other cancers in a minute, but just to stick with prostate cancer at the moment. Indeed. I think with, with MRI, it's a fantastic tool for looking at ultrastructural changes. Uh, but given the size of the prostate and its localization, you may not be able to, to determine whether... Uh, the prostate is, is, has cancer or whether there's a recurrence of the disease. In those kind of scenarios, you need some functional uh, imaging. Functional imaging is going to tell you there's a biological process that's going on there and it's related to disease. So we would typically do, say, an FDG scan, but you run into a, a slight problem because given the location of the, of the, of the prostate and the, the position of the bladder, you get a lot of signal from the bladder 
from your radiopharmaceutical. And that can obscure you making a definitive conclusion about the, the, the prostate being uh, actually having cancer or not. And that's one of the limitations of, of using um, FDG. There's a few others, but that's the one in, in the case with, um, with using cocconin versus FDG. Of course, in that region as well, if there's any inflammation, the FDG will be picked up. And, of course, you won't be able to see any image at all of the prostate by the surrounding uh, inflammation. So choline is, is different. Its mechanism of action is, is essentially it's a lip, it's used for lipid metabolism imaging. So, so cancers have high phosphocholine, and it's an intermediate and incorporation of choline into phospholipids. So they use lipids to grow and, and and they're incorporated into their cell membrane and a different form of energy. So you can use glucose to grow cells and you can also use lipids to grow cells. Now, because the choline is only picked up by those um, highly lipid metabolic cells, the prostate cancer picks up the choline and internalizes it and you can clearly see if you have a lot of choline in the prostate, that it is uh, cancerous. Right. So you, you'd uh, definitely say then that the five-star um, imaging method for prostate cancer is a choline PET CT. It, it's a good and useful tool, proven useful tool for, for prostate imaging. And the, the advantage is instead of looking at glucose metabolism, you're actually looking at lipid metabolism. So you're looking at a different element that's specific to the cancer in that region. Oh, what other um, cancers actually are they used for as a diagnostic tool, choline PET-CT? Currently, the focus is really just on prostate use. Right. And um, if we talk about breast cancer and uh, the use of imaging methods there, uh, what would be the advantage of a woman who, say, may be triple negative breast cancer and uh, early in the stage of diagnosis, maybe before surgery? Um, what would you uh, have to say about the outcome there by using a, a PET-CT? I think it's, it's, it's very useful to, to remember that your PET-CT data will give you real functional uh, data about the, uh, the stage of the cancer, its localization and volume. And this can provide you very, very useful um, information for planning your surgery and planning radiation therapy. And it's, it's quite the norm nowadays to, to perform a PET-CT for radiation planning purposes. And we'll give you a number of options to, to explore. Um, more information, certainly for the uh, doctors in hand, is a very, very uh, powerful uh, tool to suggest a change in, in treatment or a change in possible surgical management. Mm -hmm. um, we mentioned uh, neuroendocrine tumours before, of which there are a very large selection, and uh, I'm seeing certainly more of these in my clinical practice. Um, what's the recommended imaging these days for determining uh, the advancement or uh, even whether there are metastases of a neuroendocrine tumour? That's a very interesting uh, question, Grace. And neuroendocrine tumours uh, have, have become prevalent, um, I, I, I feel, because the, the treatment and the detection of them has, has, has largely advanced over the, over the years. 
and I'm very proud to say PET has had to do, a lot to do with that. We, we use um, a number of techniques to image the tumor directly because the, the great biologists and, and, and the oncologists who have, have looked at these cells uh, on these particular types of neuroendocrine tumors, which we abbreviate to NETs, have found that they overexpress a special type of receptor. And that receptor is called a somatostatin receptor, and there's different types. And we're able to create synthetic drugs that bind to that receptor. So what we do is we make a drug called uh, octreotide, um, and we radio-label that, and we can inject it into the patient to directly image just the neuroendocrine tumor. Mm. So for people who have, um, say, a thyroid-based one, a thyrocalcitonin, um, I guess that would be the same thing there? Um, that's correct. Yep. Okay, we're about to come up to another break. I'm really fascinated in this subject, and uh, I knew it per peripherally, but uh, since I was doing some research uh, before interviewing you, I am really fascinated on all of the, the subtleties and where this area of scanning and radio uh, pharmaceuticals is going. So don't go away, folks. We're going to be back shortly on Navigating the Cancer Maze. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Listen each week to Navigating the Cancer Maze with your host, Grace Goller, from the Grace Goller Institute as she interviews cancer medicine experts, researchers, allied health professionals, patients, and caregivers. Navigating the Cancer Maze provides you with information, education, inspiration, and a toolkit that will equip you wherever you are and whoever you are to effectively navigate your way through the cancer maze. The Grace Scholar Institute also provides ebook resources. Be inspired. Be empowered. Visit the Institute's website at www.gracegolarinstitute.com or email institute at gracegolar.com. Learn to navigate the cancer maze with trusted professionals in cancer health care. The Grace Scholar Institute, a not-for-profit organization with an established track record, a global clientele, and expertise in local and international referrals. The Institute's founder has almost 40 years' experience as a multidiscipline cancer strategist with a focus on finding options and implementing personalized care for cancer patients. The Grace Scholar Institute can help you navigate the cancer maze. Why not email the Institute today at institute at gracegoller.com or visit their website at gracegollerinstitute.com. Learn more. Live better. Voice America Health & Wellness. You are tuned into Navigating the Cancer Maze with your host, Grace Goller. We'd love to hear from you today on our program. Please call us toll-free from North America at 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. International callers may dial in to 480-553-5759. You may also send an email to institute at gracegoller.com. Now, back to Navigating the Cancer Maze. Okay, we're back on Navigating the Cancer Maze. I'm Grace Gawler, and today we have a, an expert here talking about radio pharmaceuticals. His name is Neville Shimon, and he is in Singapore. 
Neville, more about neuroendocrine tumours. Um, there are some people who have been having an experimental treatment, a trial treatment of um, a radionucleotide. It's octreotidal lutate. Can you describe how lutate works and uh, have you had any personal experience with this? Right, so, so um, I'll have to just walk you through this one because there's a few steps to it. Please. <laughs> so, so imagine in your NETs and your neuroendocrine tumours, they are overexpressing on their cell surface a particular receptor called somatostatin. We can make a synthetic version of that um, peptide or that, or, or that drug to bind to that receptor. We call it octreotide. Now, to make octreotide radioactive so we can use it to, to either kill cancer or to image cancer, we first have to bind it with a, uh, with, with a product called DOTA. Now, it's an amide, and I don't want to go into the chemistry too much, but we take octreotide and we stick it together with DOTA. Now, once DOTA is attached to, to octreotide, we can actually attach the, the radioisotope. So then we can attach uh, lutetium-177, and to cut it all short, we instead of calling it um, octreotide, DOTA, lutetium-177, we just call it lutate. Right. But, and that means we can then inject into the patient. The lutate will hunt down the, the, the cancer that's overexpressing the somatostatin receptors, bind to it, and it will deliver radiation directly to that a source, gamma radiation and beta radiation, and kill the cancer. This has had some terrific results, hasn't it? It, 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 it has. And uh, I, I take my hat off to Richard Baum and the Bad Burka team who have kind of pioneered this therapy and shown unequivocally its tremendous impact on managing uh, this disease. Mm. Um, you've mentioned the Bad Burka team. Can you tell us a little bit about them and, and perhaps how they have uh, influenced yourself in, in your work? Absolutely. I think um, my, my industry, is a, sort of uh, um, radiopharmaceuticals, nuclear medicine, uh, etc., is all, all um, um, led by mavericks. <laughs> <laughs> and they, they believe that their understanding of um, the, the physiology of disease uh, or the pathophysiology of disease needs to be from first-hand experience and observation. If... Uh, if there's a, a trend towards treating a disease in a specific way, they'll, they'll try a number of different avenues and distill down through uh, iterative uh, scientific processes what works best. And I think that the Bad Burka team really uh, st stumbled upon something that, that makes good scientific sense but needed a leap of faith to try, which was that we had imaging agents for NETs. Could we convert them into being therapies? And they took that natural progressive leap and they tried it on patients. And sometimes a community needs individuals like that, like Prof. Bond, who are prepared to, to take the scientific initiative and, and the, 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 the leap of faith that this could be a potential therapy. Mm. Rather than wait and sit back and wait for other industries to come along with a, with a, uh, a new option or solution. Now, where are they located for our listeners today who might like to have a look at this on the website? Um, so also the spelling of Dr. Bohm, if you would. Okay. Um, so uh, Bad 
Berka is spelled B-A-D-B-E-R-K-A, and, and that's in Germany. Um, and Prof Baum is uh, B-A-U-M, right. if I recall. He's going to shout at me now, so I can't remember that. <laughs> um, so it's Prof Richard Baum. Richard Baum, okay. And um, he's uh, doing, I think he mentioned a word to me when we met in Singapore, Therodiagnostics. Theranostics, yes. Theranostics right. is a, um, a, a, a capability where what you're using as a diagnostic can become a therapy. Nice term. So, yes, absolutely. And that's the foundation of peptide receptor radiotherapy. And PRRT is, is really what uh, Bad Burke is all about. It's about imaging you um, to determine the extent uh, and localization and, 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 and the staging of your cancer and then use the same imaging agent modified to deliver a therapeutic isotope to, the, to exactly the cancer that they've just imaged. Mm. I, uh, from my reading, I believe they're a world leader in neuroendocrine tumors and uh, application and research, yes? Absolutely, absolutely. Well, that will be good news for anyone who's listening today and is wondering where they can go next. Um, if they have a neuroendocrine tumour and if you can't get treatment uh, where you live locally. Now, as we're talking about all of this, Neville, I'm thinking about you. Um, it might be all very well for people who go along and have the occasional scan. What do you do uh, to protect yourself? Because you must have quite a degree of uh, you know, high exposure to, uh, to radiation. How is that for you? Absolutely, and it's something that... Um um, all of us in, in the radiopharmaceutical business um, pay particular attention to. Um, Singapore, like, like Australia, that is governed by a, a, a number of, of, of specific laws that, that regulate the use of, of, of radioactive isotopes. So we have a facility that's custom um, designed to essentially shield any of the, we call them operators, but you might call them manufacturers who are creating these products from all this radiation. Some of the processes are highly automated, so they don't require uh, human beings to interact with the, the equipment that are manufacturing uh, the, the drug. Uh, and some uh, hands-on processes, but involve specialized equipment that, that, that shield the operator's uh, body. And their, their hands, of course, are exposed to radiation, but given the fact that they, they're performing the procedures very quickly, that's limited. But there is still some exposure. I know in, in my day, I, I don't think I followed uh, um, all the rules in England as much as I should have and, and, and probably took more radiation than I should have. <laughs> I always like to think that's part of the, uh, the, the process of, uh, of, of working in this field. Yes, uh, I had a bit of experience of that myself. Uh, my ex-husband and I had a veterinary practice and many years ago, and uh, when we bought the practice, we got out all the old x-rays from the previous vet, and um, there were all these hands all over the x-rays holding animals. And I, was, I was horrified. <laughs> there wasn't one x-ray you had in that clinic without someone, his hands being, you know, there... <laughs> He, he actually passed with leukemia, um, I think, in his mid-60s, and, and I, I guess I wasn't surprised. So, yeah, it's an occupational hazard, of course, for you guys, isn't it? It is, and that's why we always take our hat off to um, uh, the nuclear medicine physicians 
uh, of old, who um, again were all the mavericks who pioneered the, the, the use of, of these uh, radiopharmaceuticals to, to, to fight cancer in patients. And they've taken a lot of exposure because they wanted to, to you know, assure their patients that uh, these techniques uh, could be done. And, and often I, I know of, of people who've held the hand of patients while they've been in scanners. And that's, that's part of the job, I think. Nowadays, the, the risks and exposures are, are, are tremendously lower. In fact, I'd say almost minuscule because most of the systems are fully automated, like dose dispensing now. And there's no longer a system where you know, you're exposing yourself to radiation. There's an automatic machine that preps the dose and, it, and, it, and, it's, and it's, then it's ready immediately for injection. So there's lots of um, technology now to help us. Mm, which is excellent. We owe those people in the past a very large uh, debt and gratitude. Absolutely. Um, can I ask you about SPECTRE procedures? That's S-P-E-C-T. Um, where do they fit into the imaging arena for cancer patients or for other patients? I have a, a specialist GP that I do some work with from time to time and he's been using them to study brains. Uh, yes, I mean... Uh SPECT is a, is a technology that's, that's you know, developing all the time. It, it's one of the, the, the it, it precedes uh, PET. So SPECT is single photon emission and computerized tomography. So it's always uh, been um, a, a lower resolution of, of, of PET. But because the, um, the, the scanner itself depends on the radiopharmaceutical, and radiopharmaceuticals for PET are, are difficult to manufacture, but the radiopharmaceuticals for SPECT are much easier and more straightforward to manufacture. Um, new technologies are being developed around those uh, SPECT radiopharmaceuticals. So in, in recent years, they've developed a whole um, uh, new series of tracers um, that uh, enable you to do different types of more specialized imaging. Um, the resolution is less than a PET scan. However, the cost and also uh, the ability to, to have that procedure available, say at your clinic or your hospital, is is much higher than um, than consequently for for a PET scan. Right. I just want to mention here, Neville. Um, I've noticed in the uh, Global Health and Travel magazine, it's an international healthcare and medical tourism magazine that I will put a link to on the website. There's some very nice um, little succinct one pages that you've been involved with uh, creating that are in that magazine. So I'd just like to mention that because I think it's uh, it's very nicely written and it's very understandable by uh, the average person the average cancer patient without a medical degree. Oh, that's, that's great. And uh, uh, I, I thank my uh, friends at the Society of Nuclear Medicine and, uh, for, for their, their support on, on, on this and being able to um, contact patients outside of or, or, or provide information outside of the spectrum of the clinic is, is always a, uh, a great thing to have an opportunity to do. I often, when, I, when I've read um, sort of things related to, to, to medicine in the past, I've always been kind of baffled by all the, the, the kind of fancy nomenclature they use. Yeah. And it's, it's not really necessary because uh, most of these technologies are actually quite straightforward. What patients really want to know is, is what's the benefit to them? What's the, the, the risk-benefit ratio? And I, I don't think a PET scan should just be used um, as a primary 
a diagnostic tool for cancer. It's, it's, it's not designed for that purpose. But if there's a high probability of cancer and it can be used effectively and provide new information, I, I think it's, uh, it's a useful tool. Great. Thank you for that answer. And uh, I will put the link to that particular magazine on the blog, which is grayschoolermedia.com, where you'll also be able to read more about Neville. So we've come to the end of uh, this session. We're coming back shortly on Navigating the Cancer Maze to wrap it up for the day talking about scans. Don't go away, folks. Helping you make informed decisions for your life. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. Learn to navigate the cancer maze with trusted professionals in cancer health care. The Gray Scholar Institute, a not-for-profit organization with an established track record, a global clientele, and expertise in local and international referrals. The Institute's founder has almost 40 years' experience as a multidiscipline cancer strategist with a focus on finding options and implementing personalized care for cancer patients. The Gray Scholar Institute can help you navigate the cancer maze. Why not email the Institute today at institute at grayscholar.com or visit their website at grayscholarinstitute.com. Listen each week to Navigating the Cancer Maze with your host, Grace Scholar from the Grace Scholar Institute as she interviews cancer medicine experts, researchers, allied health professionals, patients, and caregivers. Navigating the Cancer Maze provides you with information, education, inspiration, and a toolkit that will equip you wherever you are and whoever you are to effectively navigate your way through the cancer maze. The Gray Scholar Institute also provides ebook resources. Be inspired. Be empowered. Visit the Institute's website at www.grayscholarinstitute.com or email institute at grayscholar.com. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. You are tuned into Navigating the Cancer Maze with your host, Grace Goller. We'd love to hear from you today on our program. Please call us toll-free from North America at 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. International callers may dial in to 480-553-5759. You may also send an email to institute at grayscholar.com. Now, back to Navigating the Cancer Maze back on Navigating the Cancer Maze today with Neville Shimon. Um, we're talking about scanning and uh, radio pharmaceuticals. So um, what do you envisage for the future of radio pharmaceuticals? And uh, without giving too many secrets away, do you have anything really fascinating and interesting in the pipeline or is there something you'd like to do in it that you're not doing yet? I think um, the, f- the future for, for, for ourselves is to better characterize the cancer that's prevalent in the patient. And we want to be able to look at providing the doctor with information that can help select the correct strategy for the initial treatment of the patient and then subsequently monitor the response to that therapy and then make a decision to change if necessary. Um, Imaging apoptosis has always been a, a great interest for me because if you can look at whether a chemotherapy can induce apoptosis into the cancer, you can determine how resistant it is to to that drug. 
So I've, I find that kind of imaging very interesting, and we're exploring that right now. That's molecular way, imaging, is it? Uh, yes, uh, imaging with PET. Uh, yeah, yeah. And angiogenesis as well. We know a lot of tumors, they grow very fast by creating new blood vessels. And this is, enhances their ability to withstand uh, um, chemotherapy as well because the way the cancer grows, it's not homogenous and you get pockets of um, poor blood supply inside the tumor. We call it hypoxia. It just means that there's poor blood supply and poor oxygenation of the tumor. Now, that becomes a problem because the drug... Your chemotherapy is traveling in your bloodstream. It can't get to the target. And also, when you bombard the tumor with radiation, um, it's, resi it's resistant to that radiation because it's already become, so to speak, tougher because it's been deprived of oxygen. So mm -hmm. the cells seem to be more resistant to, to damage. So we're interested in imaging angiogenesis because knowing about the, the, the component of apoptosis, the, the response of the, the cancer to... Uh, uh, cancer-killing drugs and knowing about how uh, hypoxic the environment is in the tuber, tumor microenvironment and, and the blood supply to the tumor, we can also target the tumor in more effective ways. And these are some of the components that we're trying to um, pioneer um, both in, in the private and public sector kind of partnerships. So we, we hope to, to, to be able to bring on new tracers that can effectively provide some um, new information to clinicians who want to know about those two components. And this is still experimental at the moment, yes? It is, it is. Could you consider possibly the same thing would happen for people that are, say, doing some of the, the vaccines, perhaps people that are, are resistant to uh, other treatments that they might have had, and perhaps dendritic cell vaccine or adoptive cell therapy um, and those kind of things, or immunological drugs like, uh, you know, the new checkpoint inhibitors that are around. Uh, is there any work being done on being able to image molecularly what's actually going on in the body with these newer approaches? There is the, the, a, a big trend to be able to, to use um, uh, at the kind of a, at the transcriptional level, look for changes uh, in, 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 uh, on the genetic level and, and that can be done by tagging certain um, iRNAs and, and looking to see how they incorporate into cells. Um, looking at, at, at these very micro level processes is an ongoing uh, um, uh, technology and we're all moving progressively to looking at specific biological processes. So this is a continuous thing, uh, Grace, and it's very exciting because we really need to characterize individually the cancer that you have to, I feel, better be able to tackle it with, while minimizing the side effects of the treatment that's being proposed. Yeah, couldn't agree more. I think this is a very exciting field. Um, Neville, is there anything you'd like to say to cancer patients who are listening to today's show? Um, or also, is there any area of your work that we haven't yet discussed that you would like to share with people? I think I'll, I'll take the first point um, for, for cancer patients, and that is um, technology and the movement and knowledge of all the great scientists uh, out there working in the oncology, nuclear medicine, radiology uh, fields has, has made cancer now clearly 
marked uh, in the crosshairs for um, for a cure to come along. Perhaps not in, in 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 a silver bullet type of manner, but a range of treatments that can target different and selective types of, of cancer. But the the movement, the whole trajectory is towards tackling this disease. And cancer now, if it can be identified and characterized as early as possible, you stand a very good chance of, of, of making a full uh, welcome recovery. And um, I, I feel in this day and age, uh, we, we have the technology to make uh, a difference in, in, in a patient who has been diagnosed with cancer, um, say for example prostate cancer, that therapy options weren't available given how early this, this, this disease can be detected now, maybe 30 years ago or 40 years ago. And, and that progression will only continue uh, because individuals um, in the oncology space, in the imaging sphere, are determined to, to provide you with the best tools possible. So look at, at your disease and look at how it's responding to therapy and to find, to find the disease as early as possible. I think it's uh, very inspiring indeed, and I've certainly learned a lot, as I said before, in um, doing some research for the show. I, I think so often we hear about uh, chemotherapies and the latest treatments, but we don't hear enough about the sort of work that you and other people are, are doing and pioneering, so it's fantastic. Uh, Neville, what do you do in your spare time to balance this uh, pretty heavy work that you're involved in? I think uh, I, I, uh, I like to... Um as you know, Grace, race motorcycles. And uh, one of the things that I, I really still enjoy um, is, is getting on a, on a high-powered bike and uh, going to a, the Malaysia to, to the Sepang Formula One circuit and uh, racing around there with my, my friends. Um, and it, it gives me a, a, a moment to really uh, be grateful that um, I have this opportunity to live out here in Singapore and uh, grow old ungracefully. <laughs> that's, uh, that's a great note to finish on. Um, I'd like to absolutely uh, thank you today. Uh, I think it's been interesting. It's been inspiring. I think it's great to educate patients, as I said before, about uh, what's involved in the entire area of their, their cancer therapy, their diagnostics, etc. And I think you have just uh, encapsulated that beautifully today. And I know you've answered a lot of questions for patients who are listening to Navigating the Cancer Maze. So thank you so much. Thank you, Grace, and uh, thank you to the Society of Nuclear Medicine, all my colleagues in Singapore, and uh, definitely to, to my team at Singapore Radio Pharmaceuticals, who always continue to inspire me to do more. Fantastic. Thanks very much, and bye for now. Thank you again for listening to Navigating the Cancer Maze. Please join your host, Grace Goller, again next Friday at 12 noon, U.S. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Remember, cancer is not something you have to face alone. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. 
The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 